ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Welcome to Ignition, a radio show and podcast for the new evangelization. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Bergwald, and we want to launch your own efforts to explain the Catholic faith and to invite others to live it. Before we get into today's topic, we want you to know that we love listener feedback. So if you've got questions about today's episode, or if you've got ideas for future episodes, please contact us. There are two easy ways to do that. You can email us, ignition at sfcatholic.org. Again, ignition at sfcatholic.org. Or you can tweet at us. That's The Twitter handle is at sfdiocese with the hashtag ignition. Again, at sfdiocese and use the hashtag ignition. So I, I just need to, for the sake of my conscience, um, repeat what I said earlier. Before we get into today's topic, we want you to know that we love listener feedback. How's that, Father? Sounds great. Okay. <laughs> so, we do. Great. I don't get any of it. Dr. Bergwald gets all of it. But I'm sure it's great to that. That uh, voice you're hearing is Father Joseph Scholten, who is my uh, guest co-host once again on um, this episode of Ignition. Father Scholten, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit more to our audience in addition to who you, what your name is? Sure. Yeah. I'm the, um, I'm the associate pastor at St. Lambert Parish, as well as the chaplain of Wagorman High School. I've been a priest since June of 2017. I'm happily serving in my hometown of Sioux Falls, <clears throat> South Dakota. Excellent. Uh, and again, my name is Chris Bergwald. I'm the Director of Adult Discipleship and Evangelization with the Diocese of Sioux Falls. Uh, my wife, Jermaine, and I have been married since 1999, and we have five kids, all of them in, uh, born and raised in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And our parish is, say, at least at this point of this recording we haven't been kicked out yet but it's it's st lambert's where father is the uh the associate so we'll keep you around for a thanks little. thanks yeah. father i think i'm gonna get rid of you before you get rid of me that's that's, that's probably what's not gonna happen. unlikely <laughs> so um father Scholten and i over the course of the last several months as we're recording this uh have, have been doing a, a series of of podcasts of episodes on Brant Petrie's The Case for Jesus, a really good book. We'd encourage you to look through our archives if you haven't uh, listened to the first nine episodes uh, in this series. Um, but we are today and the next couple episodes are going to wrap up this book. Finally, Father. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny how a book of only, what, 160, 170 pages or so, it's taken us this many months, 191, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But we're getting there. We're slow we're readers we're and slow. learners. <laughs> and talkers. Well, no, that's not true. We'll get there. Uh, so Father, as a, as a way into um, this this 10th episode in the series, looking at actually chapter 11 um, in the book, but why don't, could you, uh, in 30 or 60 seconds, summarize what we've talked about in the yeah. first nine episodes? Yeah. So we, you know, we're big fans of The Case for Jesus by Dr. Brant Petrie. Um Essentially, he's trying to answer the question, did Jesus of Nazareth claim to be God? Right? Because if Jesus claimed to be God, then you, you, you're forced to confront um, your own judgment about him. You know, was he, a, was he a liar? Was he just crazy? Or was he actually the, the son of God? Right. right? Is he divine? And, uh, and that, that really hinges on this notion that Jesus made this claim and, and purported to be, um, to be somehow divine. And, uh, and so... Dr. PG goes through the evidence both inside the Gospels and, and outside of the, 
the Bible outside of the New Testament that that Jesus in fact made this claim. And, uh, and today we're going to talk about, I believe, um, unless you have other plans, <laughs> one of the one of the main reasons that Jesus uh, that we can we can safely say yes, this man who lived back in in Galilee in the first century, this man really did claim uh, to be divine. Right. And uh, and that reason is the fact that he was crucified. Right. <laughs> now, at this point, the listener father is probably going, wait, what? But I, I know we're going to unpack that. No, right? Right. We'll right. make the connection. We're going to make the connection. Well, Good. Dr. Petrie's already made the connection. He's made the connection. We're just going to rehash and then encourage you to go read the book because it's great. <clears throat> Speaking of rehash, I'd like to think of, of this series of episodes, Father, as a midrash mm. on mm. Dr. Petrie's book. Is that something medical? Uh, well, it might Maybe be. we shouldn't talk about that out uh, here. It's a rash in the middle of my... Uh, um, midrash is is Jewish... <laughs> At what point do we just start over? What? Recording. No, we don't know. Uh, never. That's never happened in the history of... Well, wow. Not not because of inane host banter. <laughs> oh, man. It's happened for technical oh, difficulty man. reasons. <laughs> no, but mid- Introduction ra- difficulties. Hey, hey, I was... Uh, hey, now... That's that's the Lord humbling me because I, I need a lot of humility, uh, Father. Anyway, well, way to go, not censoring anything. Exactly. Um, a midrash is is the name for Jewish commentary on uh, well, scripture. Um, so we're we're commenting not on scripture but on another written text, Doctor Petrie's book, and and considering that he's soaking us in the Jewish context of who Jesus is, I feel it's only appropriate, Father, to use a term like midrash. Yeah, it makes sense, and he's really just commenting on scripture. So it's, this is midrash and midrash. Yeah, yeah. meta. Yeah. Me- <laughs> it's so meta, man. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Okay. All right. Now we're moving along because pretty soon we'll have to start over recording. So why don't you? So chapter eleven, the crucifixion. You're going to show us how Dr. Petrie connects that to Jesus claiming to be divine, the fact that he died on the cross. Mm-hmm. But how, how do we start out with this chapter? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, let's first just just put into context how important the crucifixion of Jesus is for the early Christians. Okay. So if you look at you look at say the Gospel of Mark. Shortest gospel. Um, some consider it to be the earliest gospel written. Um, the crucifixion, the whole trial, execution, crucifixion of Jesus um, takes up a disproportionately large amount of the of the writing. Right. You know, it's almost half of of the gospel of Mark is devoted to the last um, last day of Jesus's life, last day and a half of Jesus's life. Right. Right. And so. Um, for the early Christians, clearly this event is really essential. Um, Paul, for example, doesn't tell any stories from the life of Jesus. He doesn't talk about the things that he did, you know, the miracles and the and the teachings very much at all. He, he focuses so much, though, on his death and resurrection. The essence of what Jesus did for Paul is found there in his crucifixion, his death, his, his rising from the dead. And so, um, so... Clearly, the Christians saw this as essential, and it's connected with with the very nature of Jesus, the identity of of Jesus Himself. Yeah, we know there's so much. You know, I think when people think of the Gospels as biographies, they presume that we're going to hear Jesus was born at four fifty seven p.m. on zero. I mean, literally, but <laughs> like, and then walking through, and when he was right. right. 
13, he, but that's not what the Gospels are. They focus on the key things. And if, as you're saying, not only Mark, but all four Gospels give disproportionate space right. to what we would consider the events of Holy Week. Right. We do have that kind of detail when, yeah. it, comes to, when it comes to his last days, for yep. sure. Um, not so much at the beginning. And, uh, and just to note um, that, that the details uh, match. I mean, some, you know, sometimes right. things are right. in a slightly different order, but between the between the four gospels, um, the the details of his crucifixion match, and the, what's said there is is corroborated by ancient authors um, like Tacitus, Josephus, who is uh, Tacitus being a, a Roman historian, Josephus being being a Jewish historian, um, and then Lucian of Samosata, uh, who is a Greek or a sort of a Hellen, Hellenistic. Um, Historian, all speak in reference to the you know this Jesus, whom they called the Christ or the Christos, uh, being crucified, dying by crucifixion right. under the under the Romans. <clears throat> so there's a pretty good historical basis to believe that the man Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Roman authorities at the end of his life, and uh, and the early Christians certainly seem to uh, to agree on that and to focus in a big way on it. Okay. So if somebody's crucified. Put to death by legal execution. Um, a natural question to ask is, why? Right. <laughs> yeah. What was the crime? What did he do? Yeah. Right. What was the crime? What was he? You know, this is this is a public execution under the authorities. It's not like oh, this mob got really mad at Jesus and and lynched him or something. Is this is a public trial? That's yeah. What was the charge? Right? Yeah. What was the charge? And anybody um, who really wants to take a, a, a historical look at Jesus has to reckon with this fact because it's the it's the most agreed upon fact about Jesus right? right it's the most agreed upon event from the life of this man you know you can dispute some of the miracles you can say well you know this gospel writer didn't bring up Lazarus so did he really raise Lazarus from the dead this gospel author didn't didn't talk about the uh the 12 year old girl did he did he really you know heal her right um but nobody questions the fact that he that he was put to death under the Romans by crucifixion right right so Again, why did that happen? Okay, and um, and this becomes a problem for people who who want to say that Jesus was a was a, a teacher, a wise rabbi, um, but didn't make any didn't have any pretensions toward divinity, right? um, because nice teachers and wise rabbis don't get executed, right? 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 Um, at it, least not. <laughs> not, not under normal circumstances. You have to have some some basis, some some uh, some charge. Now, the most he had to have deeply disturbed people who had the power to do this, right? Right. right. Um, and the most most common theory, if you don't want to say that it was that Jesus claimed to be God, um, the most common theory is that Jesus was somehow somehow seen as a as a threat to power. That he uh, that he was a kind of revolutionary. And the way that this is often expressed is that Jesus threatened the temple somehow. You know, the temple being the the seat of of Jewish religion and the Jewish nation, and uh, and that somehow he was a, a revolutionary and he was trying to usurp power, made some sort of move against the temple during his during his life. So, so here you mean revolutionary, not in the sense of rebel uh, revolution against Rome. You mean revolutionary within Judaism for that, the Jewish authorities. That's that seems <clears throat> that that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, because Jesus makes these st- statements about about the temple, right? Right. right. Um, 
and they're brought up again at his, uh, at his trial. So in Matthew, um, Matthew 12, 6, Jesus claims that something greater than the temple is present, uh, and he's referring to himself, right? He calls right. himself greater than the temple. And, uh, and then there are those words that are in the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus, uh, Jesus says, tear down this temple and in three days I will, I right. will raise it back up. Yep. And, um, excuse me, those, that's in John, uh, Jesus gives the actual quotation in the other gospels. It's, uh, it's the quotation comes from his adversaries at his trial. Okay. Right. They're saying this man claimed to to destroy the temple and, and rebuild it, um, but Jesus does speak about the temple and refers to its destruction and then raising it back up. And so, um, and so that's sort of brought out as a as a possible reason that they would want to execute Jesus. Right. Um, the only problem is that's not why they actually put him on trial, and that's right. not the charge that's that's leveled against him. Right. Right. Um, so if we look at Mark, Mark 14, uh, 55, verse, starting at verse 55, you have this uh, account of the charges of the trial of Jesus and the charge that's brought against him. And so um, I think I'm just going to read that okay. and then comment on Great. it. Great. Right. So here's Mark's account of, uh, of Jesus' trial in front of the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish, the Jewish high council. Now the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, and their witness did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even so, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he was silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Mm. So the thing, to, the thing to note here is that while the temple is referred to, um, nobody charges him with being a, a revolutionary. Nobody charges him with being a threat to the, to the temple's authority. Uh, on his own words, they condemn him for blasphemy. Right. Right. So let's talk about the, the charge of blasphemy a little bit. Okay. Right. This is something that, that's followed Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. You know, you hear the, the charge of blasphemy at Mark, uh, Mark chapter two, for example, um, where Jesus is, Jesus has been preaching. He's just starting his ministry. And, uh, and then it says, well, this is a scene where in their house, where they're in the house and he's, um, he's told the paralytic that his sins are forgiven. That episode we referred to earlier. Yep. In a, in a previous show. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak thus? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? All right, so Jesus is charged with blasphemy. Way back, beginning of his ministry, and then elsewhere, Matthew 9, 9, 3, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. 
And then in the chapter 10 of the Gospel of John, there's a, there's a scene where the Jews actually are ready to stone Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they are about to do sort of the whole mob lynching thing. And why does that happen? Jesus asks them kind of snarkily, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And the Jews answered him, We stone you for no good work but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And that's the essence of the charge of, of blasphemy. It's this pretension of divinity, making yourself equal with God. Um, and back in Leviticus, you know, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 24, 16, there's a commandment, let he who blasphemes the name of the Lord be put to death. And, uh, and Josephus, that Jewish historian, uh, gives a, a more specific charge or a more specific sentence. He says, Let him that blasphemes God be stoned, then hung for a day and buried ignominiously and in obscurity. Um, and Philo of Alexandria is another Jewish scholar from, uh, from Egypt, slightly before Jesus' time. He, he says, uh, Blasphemy is the act of a man who has dared to compare himself to the all-blessed God. Right, so they have this sort of early testimony, what is blasphemy and what are you supposed to do with somebody who blasphemes? And that's exactly what happens to Jesus. Right. He's, he's apparent, well, he's being charged with claiming to be God. Exactly. Exactly. If you're just tuning in and you listen to Ignition, this is a broadcast for the new evangelization. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Bergwald. Father Joseph Schulten and I today are speaking about Brent Petrie's book, The Case for Jesus. And we're looking at chapter 11 of this excellent book, which is focused on Jesus's uh, crucifixion and how actually it is in fact connected to his claims of divinity. And we're just speaking here about how um, what Jesus is being tried for is blasphemy. So, Father, go ahead, continue. Precisely, right? So, bl- blasphemy is this uh, is this comparing yourself with God, right? Yep. Claiming to be at the same level of God. Now, if we go back to what we read uh, from the trial of Jesus in Mark 14, uh, the high priest asks Jesus, are you the Christ? So, the Messiah, we've talked in different episodes about the meaning of the word Messiah and what that carried with it. Right. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Right, the blessed being this this uh, way to refer to God, sort of respectful title for God, the Blessed One. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? So he's sort of asking two questions in there, really. Um, and Jesus, here, unlike other places, says very clearly, "I am." Mm-hmm. Right. So he says, "Yes, mm-hmm. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. <clears throat> I am the Son of the Blessed One, who is God." So he he does put himself in the trial at this level of divinity. Right. And nobody has any questions about what he means. <laughs> right. Right. There's no misunderstanding. Right. Yeah, it's not like they're like, no, do you mean son of the blessed one sort of euphemistically or metaphorically? metaphorically yeah. Uh, no, they, you know, what do they do? They stand up and they and they rend their garments, right? right. They, they tear they tear their uh their priestly Garb, and that's exactly, by the way, what um, what an ancient, another ancient <clears throat> Jewish writing, a Mishnah, um, slightly different than a Midrash. Yes, um, what the Mishnah Sanhedrin describes uh, the the high priests and and others uh, doing in response to blasphemy, 
blasphemy and the the blasphemous pronouncement of God's name. Because remember, even to speak the name of God was was an offense, right? You right. Know, he didn't say the divine name. That's right. why the um, they would use other titles, you know, like Lord. El Shaddai, yeah, Lord, um, Adonai, yeah, Adonai, exactly. Um, you didn't actually pronounce the name that God had revealed to Moses because it was too holy, right? And so, so and when somebody did, especially in this public sort of way, that you were supposed to tear your garments as a sign of this is a horrible right. offense, right? So, blasphemy. And that's exactly what they do when Jesus responds to Caiaphas' question. And then the it's not just it's not just Caiaphas who who sees this. It's not just the the Sanhedrin that sees this and makes this claim about Jesus or makes this charge against Jesus. It's actually the entire crowd. In the in the Gospel of John, remember the the crowd is gathered outside the Praetorium where Pontius Pilate um, has agreed to uh, to try the case against Jesus. And uh, and the crowd shouts out in those those words that we we read every Good Friday, right? Yep. You know, in the Passion Service, yep. the crowds say, you know, Pilate asks, "What has he done? You know, what has this man done?" Um, and he's trying to release him. And the crowds say, John nineteen seven, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Mm-hmm. So. It's not just, as you said, it's not just the Sanhedrin. It's not just the leaders. It's now the people as well yeah, who are saying right. Jesus needs to die. Right. So, and the law they're referring to is that is a law from Leviticus 24.16 we just referenced. Let he who, uh, he who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. Right. Okay. So again, to put this all in the big in the big picture, if you're listening, you're like, yeah, well, I know Jesus was put to death. I know, you know, I'm familiar with those words. Well, remember what this means. Remember that. Um, it means that that Jesus of Nazareth made the claim to be God or to be God's son, to be divine. And if he didn't, then then there's no way to explain why why he died on the cross, which is the single fact about which most the evidence all agrees uh, from from the first century. So that's the the point that we're getting at, which what you sort of teased at the outset here, that Jesus. Jesus' crucifixion, his death by crucifixion, um, it follows directly from his claim to yeah. be God. It's one of the strongest proofs that Jesus claimed this. Okay. Right? Okay. If he hadn't claimed to be God, then why the heck did they put him on a cross? Yeah. Okay. Father, we got about five, little less than five minutes left. What What else uh, is is particularly noteworthy that you'd like to draw out from um, what is being said here? Um. Maybe what Jesus, I'm thinking of what Jesus says on the cross, for example. Sure, yeah. So they, so although, you know, he, he's crucified for claiming to be God, and that's a pretty strong uh, piece of evidence that he made that claim historically. There's another thing that happens in connection with his, with his crucifixion um, that casts some, some doubt on his divine sonship. And those are the, the words that Jesus prays, exclaims from the cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, you know, it's one of the most so- somber, really harrowing lines of the New Testament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is one of the times where some of the gospel writers um, 
make the point of recording Jesus' words, not in the Greek transla- translation, but in the Aramaic original. So uh, I don't remember which one it is. You might know, Father, but Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, right. um, which is the right. Aramaic that Jesus would have spoken. Right. Right. And so that's recorded um, Mark 15, verse 34. You've got those words of Jesus. And uh, and somebody could read those and say, okay, well, maybe Jesus claimed to be God, but here, isn't he saying that God abandoned him? Right. Right? Right. Does Jesus lose faith in his father? It sure sounds like it. Right? Um, and these are words that that have uh, that have been really contemplated and and entered into contemporary theology quite a bit. They show, you know, some right. have said, well, these really show Jesus's <clears throat> solidarity with human suffering. Um, he's entering into that place of human um, human separation from God because of our sin. You know, he doesn't sin, but he's he goes to the place where sins brought us. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of beautiful insight you can gain from that. But what Petrie does here is what he does throughout the whole book, which is he puts these words of Jesus in a, a Jewish context, right? Right. And any Jew who heard those words, any any pious praying Jew, which was you know there were a lot of them. Um, in the first century, it's very religious, fervent time. Uh, any Jew who heard those words would know that Jesus re- was referring to the twenty-second Psalm, right? Psalm twenty-two. Okay. Psalm twenty-two, right? So if I start, if I t- if I say the Lord is my shepherd, you know there there are those of you listening who can continue at least you know the first couple lines of I that shall psalm, not want. right? In your head because you've heard it, right? Or if I say if I if I say let's pray and I say our Father. Art in heaven. Everybody knows how to continue, right? Because those are prayers that are familiar to us. Well, the Psalms are, are familiar to, to the Jewish people. It's their prayer book. And Psalm 22 begins with those words of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that Psalm goes on to describe a person in, in brutal and, and difficult suffering, lonely suffering. It's a Psalm of lamentation. It's a Psalm of lamentation. There's the line that, that says, they have pierced my hands and my feet, Right? But the one who is praying it, the speaker in the psalm, goes on to praise God, right? Because even though he seemed rejected by God, in reality, God never abandons him. Because right. the psalm ends with this, with this outburst of praise and trust in God. Right, right. Uh, um, uh, ex- expression is the word for the ex- an expression of confidence that God will remain faithful. Exactly. And not only that, not only will God remain faithful to the person praying, but he will bring about somehow something great, the conversion of the world. The psalm continues, All the families of nations shall worship before him. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Right? Right. So the psalm begins with suffering. Why have you abandoned me? But it goes on to praise God with trust, and then it says, The whole world will turn to you, O God. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus' crucifixion. Millions, even over a billion people belong to the Christian faith, now have turned to the God of Israel. And that really began with the suffering of Jesus that that he uh, endured on the cross. So what we see in this chapter then, again, the, the overall point is, as we've said throughout, is that Jesus' crucifixion itself is a point or two, a proof in a sense, of his divinity. He was crucified because he, uh, as far as the uh, Jewish authorities were concerned, committed blasphemy by cl- claiming to be God. 
Jesus himself is Lord. And that will wrap up this episode of Ignition. Again, you can email us, ignition at sfcatholic.org, or tweet at us at sfdiocese. Use the hashtag Ignition with any thoughts, questions, or ideas for future episodes. And until next time, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.